2: Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. We dare you to get rid of us. Today on the show, appalling conditions at migration processing centres and a scandal involving leaked emails has put rebounding Home Secretary Suella Braverman back in the hotspot. Can she survive? And what does her botched reappointment say about Rishi Sunak's authority? Plus, the US midterms are next week, and we'll be speaking to guest Michelle Goldberg about the state of America halfway through Biden's first term. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, former Critical Darlings Kanye West and M.I.A. have taken a dramatic alt-right turn. What drives celebrities down the rabbit hole of conspiracies? Let's meet today's panel. Arthur Snell is host of the hit podcast Doomsday Watch, back for season three, and the author of How Britain Broke the World. Hi, Arthur. Hello. Hello. Uh, After an ominous silence, defeated Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro did not recognize Lula's victory, but did say he would respect the Constitution and his chief of staff promised a normal transition, which makes Bolsonaro more of a Democrat than Donald Trump. Are you pleasantly surprised given the narrowness of the result?
3: Yes, I am. Definitely. I I thought there was every chance of a of a kind of Trump style uh, insurrection attempt of, of, of some kind. Um, I guess two two reasons why that might not have happened. One is I wouldn't be surprised if behind the scenes, um, President Biden and his people have been putting loads of pressure on Bolsonaro and, you know, very visibly, obviously showing their support for the democratic process and the constitutional process in Brazil. But the other thing is actually that Brazil has a federal election system, which, of course, the US doesn't have. I, I would defer to Michel as the expert on that. But so it it does make it harder to try to sort of question the results when an election is run by a single authority that can declare what the results are. Right. It's pretty obvious how that's how those results have come out. Seth Tavot is a political historian and author of two books on how private members clubs have
2: shaped British politics. Hi, Seth afternoon. Matt Hancock has had the whip removed for signing up for the new series of I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. He claims that he's getting out of Westminster's ivory tower to bring politics to the people because what better way to get Joe Public engaged with policy issues than by eating kangaroo penis with Chris Moyles. What does he really hope to achieve do you think? Is it just money? I think
0: partly yes, but also a sense of purpose and importance. Usually when politicians start turning up on reality TV shows, it's a sign that their career's is on the skids and they're on their way out. Um, it was the person in his constituency association who was pretty scathing about mm. uh, all of this saying, you know, quote me, please quote me. Um, there's no love lost there. And this is somebody who may well be deselected for his own seat. Um, I think he doesn't really care anymore. It's
2: quite amazing, though, that he's also trying to promote a book about his heroic work during um, the pandemic. This does perhaps not project the the seriousness that perhaps he would like to put across.
0: No, I think he's starting to think about the life after politics. There was uh, something in Private Eye about how... Uh, Matt Hancock was uh, roundly lambasted at a recent uh, awards ceremony uh, held for the 200th anniversary of the Sunday Times, and as everyone was laughing and joking at his expense, they suddenly realised he was right there in the middle of the audience. <laughs> they said, "You know, clearly has a lot of time on his hands to be going to
2: these things now." Our guest this week is a journalist and author who's been an opinion columnist for the New York Times since 2017. Michelle Goldberg, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me
2: you are one of the uh, the lucky few verified on Twitter and Elon Musk is planning on charging- Not for eight, long. $8 a month for the privilege. Oh
1: my God, I would pay $8 a month to somebody to keep me from going on Twitter.
2: Well, you did right that your, your your sort of, your dark hope was that, that Elon Musk would actually destroy Twitter. Do you think he's well on his way?
1: I think he is. I mean, I think it might be a little bit slow. There's like a collective action problem and that I think if you say to a group of, fairly plugged in political types, at least in America, you know, that hell site, they'll know that, that, that Twitter is what you're talking about. It's a source of, you know, both so much unhappiness, but also so much political dysfunction. I mean, obviously you have no, I don't think you have a Donald Trump if you don't have Twitter, but it also creates really perverse incentives on the left because it gives you a sort of really bad sense of where the actual consensus among voters is because most normal people aren't on Twitter. Um, and so look, I think that if, you know, if, if A, if he starts charging for Twitter, then having a – then the, the kind of badge, which doesn't really do anything for you. I don't – you know, I mean, it's something I got when I got the job at the Times. Somebody called them up and said, add it to my account. It hasn't really changed anything for me. But if you make it something that you can pay to have, A, you're going to have a huge number of imposter accounts, and the badge itself will just be a sign that you're kind of a huge dork. So, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, eventually it can go the way of... I hope it goes the way of many other social media sites before it. You know, even Facebook, I never really look at anymore. Again, I think the only way, the only possible silver lining is that Twitter itself is such a negative force that we'd be far better off without Twitter than with it. Well,
2: um, we're going to return to that slightly in the middle of the show. Let's get on with it. First up, Home Secretary Suella Braverman, at the time of recording, is still in post after a furious defence of her reappointment in the Commons. She's been shown to have lied about sending government emails to a personal account and to a Tory backbencher, which led to her sacking by Liz Truss. Now she is being blamed for appalling conditions at the Migrant Processing Centre in Manston, Kent, which was designed for 1,600 people, currently houses 4,000. Migrants are supposed to stay there for just 24 hours, but some have been there for over a month. Cases of diphtheria and MRSA have been reported. Among her critics are Tory MP Roger Gale, who constituency includes Manston. Arthur, briefly, what went wrong at Manston, and why could it be? Is it definitely uh, Suella Breverman's fault?
3: Well, what went wrong, very simply, is that a facility that was designed, I think, for a uh, thousand people originally has now got uh, well over double that number. This place is, is where you go for a short period at the very beginning, when you, you have just arrived in Britain, Uh, and then you're transferred normally into into hotels, pending asylum uh, applications and other immigration procedures. Clearly, that means there have to be hotel rooms available. And it seems that Suella Braverman, certainly as she's been accused of doing by a fellow Tory MP, has deliberately slow peddled the Home Office booking these hotel rooms in order to create the huge overfilling of Manston, deliberately to create these problems, deliberately to create this image of a sort of immigration crisis running out of control in this country. So it's an entirely cynical uh, approach with, of course, the the victims being these poor immigrants who who are just, you know, coming to try to pursue a, a route to being here legally.
2: Even Pretty Patel used these hotels to house migrants. Braverman allegedly didn't want to book any in Tory constituencies, which happens to mean most of the south coast. Um, what are these so-called hotels for migrants actually like? Who's running them? I mean, they're presumably yeah. not very nice.
3: No, they're not, and as it happens, I, I know a little bit about this from having been involved with various refugee groups where I live, which is southwest of England, but you you still see the same phenomenon for a start, these are not hotels that any of us would choose to take a holiday in or a you know a short business visit. These are, in many cases, they're hotels that have literally been condemned as unfit for use uh, by public authorities. Uh, there is a national contract for providing these hotels to the home office which has gone to a company called Clear Springs Ready Homes. And you can look this company up. It makes millions, literally millions, from this business. Uh, And the conditions inside these hotels, as reported both in various media articles, but also by people who've seen them directly, uh, the conditions are appalling. Uh, You have entire families in they choose hotels, not not in town centres or in anywhere sort of where there's stimulation and access to other services. They're normally... Uh, Out of town areas, of course none of these people have their own transport, of course, public transport in provincial England is pretty dire so the, the to call them hotels is generous. you, you might call them incarceration facilities, and they're, they're, there are people getting very rich from this process, and other people uh, are are suffering and it's something that I, I feel rather strongly about
2: um Seth, in the Commons government openly uh, claimed that the asylum system is broken after 12 years of Conservative government. Why do the Tories hate the Tories so much? This is actually totally normal.
0: Um, If you move around in Conservative circles, I think for the last 70 years, the standard mythology has been Winston Churchill and has been the idea that whereas everyone may be wrong and there's a Tory government that's off the rails at the moment, one lonely backbencher, one uh, virtuous voice who knows what's right pushes on and at the end of the day they are vindicated gloriously and they turn out to be magnificently right and everyone heaps praise on them. And the trouble is that you then have a system where everyone in the Conservative Party believes that they're Winston Churchill. And everybody believes that everyone else is wrong and they are absolutely right and should not compromise in any way. Um, So the sort of severity of these attacks, the the fact that it's their own party, actually only encourages them to be even more
2: vicious about it. And she used the word invasion to describe the recent influx of migrants, which is actually not that large uh, in relative terms. This is exactly the kind of word previously used in National Front and BNP manifestos. Is it fair to say, and I'm quite careful about using the word sort of fascist, for example, Mm. but is it fair to say that we have a Tory government with a a far-right Home Secretary who would probably be happier in one of the uh, more fringe parties?
0: Yeah, I think that's fairly true. But on the other hand, again, this is nothing new. For the last 50-plus years, we've had conservative governments that believe that their best bet to bonding with the electorate is to be as authoritarian as possible. Remember, they're not after all voters. They're just after a segment of the vote that will turn out consistently for them. Um, If you look at Kelvin McKenzie describing Sun readers in the 1980s, he comes up with a fairly good description of uh, how the, the sort of voter coalition there. He says, it's the bloke you see in the pub, a right old fascist, wants to send the racist epithet back uh, by his poxy council house. He's afraid of the um, unions. He's afraid of the Russians. He hates the queers and the weirdos and the drug dealers. Um, And that's not a million miles off how they are structuring the, uh, the, the Conservative Party vote. I mean, it, it evolves that there, there are tensions in that, you know, the amount of drugs allegedly dealed that Conservative Party conference, not ne- necessarily by major figures, but certainly there in the background uh, means that they've tweaked that. But fundamentally, the the kind of pitch to Conservative voters hasn't evolved that much in the last 50 years.
2: Um- Michelle, in the UK, the issue of immigration goes up and down. It sometimes it seems very prominent. Sometimes uh, everyone seems to have forgotten about it. How much of a role is immigration playing uh, in American elections at the moment?
1: I mean, a lot. And I have to say, I'm so you know, I'm, I'm frequently so envious of British politics, but even when they seem shambolic to you guys. The idea of kind of talking about immigration as an invasion, being something unusual or notable among right-wing politicians mm-hmm. is, you know, I mean, it just seems astonishing to me because that is the absolute lingua franca of the Republican Party at all levels. And it's also much more of an issue for people who are extremely concerned about America not being a majority white country anymore. So, mm-hmm. you know, I covered one congressional race where the Republican was cover- was calling for a total immigration moratorium. And he actually said on a white nationalist webcast, which again, American politics, um, but on a white nationalist webcast, that this was in part to preserve the kind of current demographics of the country. It's less of an issue for Democrats. I mean, one of the strange things about American politics right now is that on many, many issues, the two parties are just talking about totally different things But it's something that the right is able to demagogue on and it helps them. But it's not as if there is a policy debate going on.
2: Um, Arthur, uh, let's forget the email scandal. Um, It turns out that Braverman lied about reporting the email leak to the Cabinet Secretary Simon Case and was in fact confronted with the evidence after she cc'd the wrong person. Um, We know that this is a resigning matter because she already resigned over it. Can you explain why this is so serious from a national security point of view? Because I think some people would just go, you know, why does it matter if she's sort of switching accounts again? In in American politics, we know that perhaps using private uh, email account can be politically damaging. Um, but well, yeah, that
1: as you know, email security <laughs> was the most important issue in the, the twenty sixteen election.
2: <laughs> um, but obviously this is embarrassing Arthur but why is it why is it sort of uh, t- tangibly so bad what she's
3: Yeah about? well I think that the, the key point is is the role that Sorella Braverman has she's the home secretary she is responsible for all security inside Britain that's her job she's responsible for MI5 for every single police force for border security I mean this is why it's such a terrible job and people always fail in the job because it's too much of a job but there is no government role with the exception of the Prime Minister or the Foreign Secretary, that has more involvement with intelligence and with, with secure and classified information. Anything to do with terrorism plots, anything to do with Russian you know, intelligence activities here in the UK, Chinese, you name it, it's all on her desk. Now, obviously, we don't know what emails she's sending from her secure home office system, which will be state of the art, um, you know, firewall, all the government protections you could hope for. And she's forwarding this stuff to her own Gmail so she can then forward it on to anyone she feels like. And of course, she's she's clearly incompetent because she she then mm. forwarded it to someone by mistake. So we we know that she's playing fast and loose with, with the controls, which if, you know, just to be clear, I've worked in these kinds of jobs as a civil servant, you would get sacked immediately mm. if you right. did that as a civil servant. And after all, as you said, it's bad enough that she had to resign two weeks ago, uh, but she's now back in the job. Um, So we we don't know what stuff she's doing this with. But what we do know is that her government inbox will will contain some of the most sensitive information that Britain has. And so the fact that she is playing fast and loose with information security is profoundly worrying to anybody who's got Kind of knowledge of, of how our national security structures work, and I've I've seen reports that you know MI five and other security organisations don't want to show her anything anymore because they don't trust her. So that and in that case, she can't actually do her job. So whether or not she deserves to lose her job from a point of discipline, she certainly mm. deserves to lose her job on the fact that she clearly doesn't have the trust of the organisations she's supposed to work with. Um, Seth, we're told that Sunak had to appoint Rathom because she endorsed
2: him at this very specific point. Um, which seems like months ago, but Mm. days? I don't know. Time blurs. Uh, She endorsed him when it looked like Johnson might enter the race. Mm. And she is a favourite of the Tory right. So security breaches and human misery are a small price to pay. But do you think that this is making him look weak and cynical when he's trying to make that strong first impression? Because it looks like he's in hock to a fairly extreme wing of the party.
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing is that It's not unusual at all for a Prime Minister to appoint a broad coalition of people from across the party. Typically, if it's a show of strength, they'll... Appoint their uh, political rivals to something incredibly menial and marginalised. Um, yeah. See Nadim Zahawi, who seems to have been completely marginalised as minister without portfolio. But actually, giving a main office of state to someone is not necessarily a good or clever move. And the Tory right is not a small sect in the Conservative Party. There are an awful lot of people on the right of the Conservative Party who could have been appointed to that job, who wouldn't be as big a risk. Um, I mean, I can think of half a dozen names who'd have made very similar comments to Suella Braverman without necessarily having any of that baggage around security issues. I've heard the suggestion that he's somehow hoping that she'll mess up and this will collapse her career forever. I think that's
2: ascribing far too much... Competence or planning. To any I just, of this. I really don't think that if you, that, that, I don't really think it's a good idea to appoint someone in the hope that they will mess <laughs> up um, people's actual lives uh. and, then, um, and then destroy their career. Um, After Boris Johnson, anything's possible. <laughs> uh, he's also appointed an opponent of abortion rights, Maria Caulfield, as women's minister. Now, the thing is that Sinek is a, is a treasury wonk at heart. He has very strong sort of start-up Hey, guys, energy. Um, do you think he has any appetite for these culture wars? Or is it is it just pandering? And is therefore it worse because he just doesn't actually think any of this?
0: I think most of the culture war stuff is coming out of Conservative HQ and out of the campaigning wing of the Conservative Party. They're looking at polling. Um, and they're looking at trying to keep their voter coalition together. The previous sort of voter coalition in the earlier part of last decade, which barely won them the 2015 election and didn't actually get them a majority either the election before or after 2010 or 2017, um, wasn't really that large. Whereas the voter coalition Boris Johnson put together in 2019 around making Brexit happen, that worked for them really, really well. So now what they're looking at in polling is, can we get any approximation? If, If Brexit's gone as a sort of salient issue, can we find something... And the cultural wars issue actually really um does bring together exactly those groups of voters. The only problem as I think, as we've mentioned before, is no one cares uh, but they're hoping that by making it a salient issue, it might bring together enough of the
2: vote i mean what I find bizarre there is that the 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 offer that was being made, the sort of national populist offer was that investment and spending also racism mm-hmm. and sunak's offer seems to be austerity, but also racism. So,
0: Traditional
2: conservative values,
0: absolutely. You know, I mean, that's, we,
1: a, that's the Republican <laughs> approach. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> absolutely. And this is the republicanization of British politics, and it's been happening in slow motion.
1: I mean, it's fascinating to me to hear that that abortion has suddenly entered, the, right? I mean, because we tend to think of it being as mostly a settled issue in England and other European countries, except for Eastern Europe.
2: It sort of is, which is why it's so bizarre that in this particular role, he's appointed someone who voted, who has voted against abortion rights. It's just, it's not as if... He's choosing to fire this up as an issue.
0: No, but if there's any consolation, it's given the lifespan of ministers at the moment, she'll be gone within a few
2: weeks. <laughs> well, talking to people who, who we really hope will be gone is that uh, Braverman's colleague, seemed quite embarrassed by her, Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick, refused to endorse the word invasion on the media rounds and actively said, I, I wouldn't use this kind of language. Is Leaky Sue, uh, as she's delightfully known, worth spending any political... Capital on. Is it because what we saw was that Boris Johnson actually sunk himself by supporting like people he didn't need to support yeah. when they got caught up in scandals like Chris Pincher yeah. and I've forgotten his name now. The guy that started it all last December. That oh, um Yes, Owen Patterson. Owen Patterson. Um do you think that Sunak would go to the wall for Braverman, or do you think that probably not. Um there's there's an no. interesting question about how yes,
0: the vultures have started circling, but if we just forget the last 12 months, it used to be totally normal that the vultures began circling around someone like, say, Gordon Brown for three years. And you knew they were doomed, but they, they would still be hanging on in there. And even at the start of Truss's premiership, people saying, well, she's doomed now. She's only got 18 months left, which became she only got 12 yeah, yeah. months left. Um, so it's quite normal in British politics for these people to stick around for a bit. Um, it's just we we've had this extraordinary experience
2: of people disappearing in days. It's very exciting for podcasters, <laughs> if nobody else. Um, Arthur, finally, some of the people at Manston had been moved from a centre at Dover after an arson attack by a man with far right views, uh, who then killed himself. You used to work for Prevent. Why do the police hesitate to define this as terrorism? It's I, in my original version of the script, uh, referred to him as a far right terrorist, but apparently not.
3: Yeah, I have no no idea. I mean, I worked in counterterrorism for more than ten years. I cannot explain why when uh, far-right white people in this country commit terrorist uh, crimes, whether it's Thomas Mayer murdering Joe Cox or this guy doing a firebomb and, in which he killed himself, um, that's, there are always mental health cases. We're always told, well, you know, there's a mental health issue. Now, I have literally looked uh, terrorists in the eye and spoken to them in, shortly after they've been captured in Iraq. They all have mental health issues. You won't be surprised to learn. Mm. So the idea that mental health issues are unique to the white terrorists is just a bizarre, um, basically a racist trope. And you know, I I want to come up with a better answer, but as far I I haven't ever seen one. And and I, you know, I'm talking as someone who's, who's worked on the inside of this. I think it's it's a it's a disgraceful lack of courage that exists in in the um, British sort of counterterrorism community that we. We just don't like to use this terminology when it's the white people.
2: Next up, a question from our curious Patreon backers in But Your Emails. Remember, you can ask your questions too when you support us on Patreon. This week, it's a very, very simple one. Calls back to um, what we were talking to Michelle about earlier. Nick Simpson asks, if Twitter dies... Where do we move to? Michelle, you first. Is there some groovy uh, social media platform out there?
1: So the people I know are moving to Mastodon, but um, it seems to be that so many people are moving to Mastodon that they are a bit overwhelmed at the moment. I... Tried to make an account and there was I mean it's it's kind of complicated. It's a dispersed system and there are multiple servers and the server that I wanted to make an account on wasn't accepting new people. But my guess is, is that they'll scale up as more and more people kind of decamp.
2: Arthur, is there somewhere else that you would that you would go that looks sort of sufficiently thriving and not mad?
3: Well, I, I this is so embarrassing. My sort of to-do list at the moment. Has the slightly improbable sort of bullet point of find a new thing to replace Twitter, and I'm afraid <laughs> I I've, I've got as far as her, having heard of Mastodon, um, and I even went on the website the other day, and it, it was it was all a bit confusing, and and I'm sounding I know I'm sounding very sort of uh, boomer, and I'm and I'm I'm not that yet, uh, so. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Seth, with his expert on on private clubs, has a sort of the online version of a of a kind of Saint <laughs> James's uh, Gentlemen's Club, which of course would accept all all genders and uh, other diversities, and and that would be a nice place to hang out online.
0: There is one, but it's quite weird. Now, what I was thinking is how this reminds me of the way that um, conservatives were really angry a few years back at the liberal bias of Wikipedia, uh, because in the words of Stephen Colbert, uh, reality has a well-known liberal bias. And uh, <laughs> so they would set up, you know, these conservopedia nut job things. And In the same way that um, these very right-wing outlets like uh, parlor and um, Trump's Truth Social have been set up for this uh, fringe cause, I think it would be a wonderful thing if people on the liberal left would inundate Parler and Truth Social. Um, no, <laughs> you know, hard.
1: I'm going to disagree with you, actually, right. because I think that the reason that Parler and Truth Social are doing so bad is because the conservatives, if they don't have any libs to own, then what are they even doing there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, part of the reason they're so unhappy there is because they're all just talking to each other.
2: Hmm. What blows my mind is that the lessons uh, of social media were learnt a lot of time by people running message boards in the 90s. And they said that the thing is you'd start going, free speech is paramount, everybody should be able to say what they like, and then it would be like flooded with nightmares stuff. And then they would have to cut down, and then a lot of people would complain, and they go, We're going off to another message board. And then the same problem would be repeated. Mm. And people, everybody just want to go, let's have a, a lively discourse. And the only answer is one that I think right from the start just goes, no, we're going to have like serious moderation here. This whole pretense uh, that people have left to their own devices will just have a kind of a vibrant chat like we're in the <laughs> Agora in Athens or whatever. Mm. It's, it's like nonsense. And it's been proven nonsense yeah. for th- 30 years now. The, the, the way that Elon Musk comes in and just comes in with a real kind of like idiot's version of, of free speech absolutism, this is not going to work and it never has worked. With apologies to the First Amendment.
1: Well, no, I mean, but it's also not the First Amendment because, you know, the First Amendment doesn't say that you have, you know, it says you have a right to say these things, but it doesn't say that you have a right to use privately owned companies to say them. Right. I mean, you do actually have a right to stand on the corner and shout all sorts of slurs. And, you know, I'm kind of an an American enough that I would absolutely defend that. There's you know, there's the kind of First Amendment in law and then there's the First Amendment in spirit. And people conflate those two things, um, you know, to to act as if kind of any any limitation Mm -hmm. imposed by private company somehow traduces the constitution in the same way that, you know, you don't have a right to write a letter to, you you, you don't have a right to have your letter to the editor published in the New York Times.
2: I'll, I'll tell you what's fun is if you're British and you're arguing about free speech with an American who believes that the First Amendment applies to the entire world, and then, <laughs> and then you just go, well, actually, you know, we do have hate speech laws here. Well, right. And, and that's the other problem
1: that I think Elon Musk seems to have not considered is that, in addition to sort of driving people off the platform he has to somehow come up with a system that's going to take into account laws that are very different all over the world
0: but none of us would be talking about his views if he weren't a billionaire i mean genuinely there's nothing interesting there
2: Next up, the U.S. midterms are next Tuesday and Republicans seem to have regained momentum. Pollsters 538 have predicted the GOP will retake the House while the Senate is a toss-up. We're delighted to have Michelle Goldberg from The New York Times to unpack it all for us. Uh, Michelle, there is a lot to say about these many, many elections. but, But broadly speaking, when I look at it, it seems on the one hand this seems quite tight for a midterm, which the governing party usually does badly in. And on the other, the party of Trump stopped the steal in January the 6th uh, is doing shockingly well. So should we be pleased or dismayed uh, that it's this close with all these competing contexts?
1: I mean, I think we should be dismayed uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, I don't know that we actually know how close it's going to be. I mean, the the because, you know, the, there's a lot of polls that look at sort of the generic ballot. Are you going to vote Republican? Are you going to vote Democrat? And that seems to be quite close. But you can have a fairly close number. You could have, you know, sort of the same number of people voting Republican and Democrat or even slightly more people voting Democrat and still end up with huge Republican gains in the House. Um mm. You could have, and you can also have Republican gains in the Senate just because of the way, you know, the kind of counter-majoritarian features of American politics. And I think what is so dismaying about the, again, there's some of this is predictable. It's kind of thermostatic. You know, the economy is bad. Inflation is crushing for a lot of people. There's still, I think, a huge amount of residual trauma from COVID that has played into a lot of the just sort of general social unhappiness out there. So, yeah, you would expect under these circumstances that they would lose a lot of seats. Um, There was a moment when we thought that the kind of countervailing shock from the end of Roe versus Wade and this string of abortion bans that has gone into effect all over the country, often to really disastrous effect, you know, there seemed to be this kind of counterforce that was going to... Possibly overcome all these kind of baked in dynamics. But again, because this is the party of January 6th, because this is a party that has really turned its back on democracy, I mean, you have literally the person running for governor of Wisconsin saying, if I win, Republicans will never lose another election in Wisconsin again. You know, it's (laughs) it's really not subtle. If Republicans take back the House, you know, I don't know if you guys know who Marjorie Taylor Greene is. She's one of the Mm. More extreme Republicans in the House who Democrats, are stripped of her committee assignments, she is going to probably play a much larger role in the next Congress. And there's going to be a whole bunch of new Congress people like her. Um, you're also going to have, you know, depending on what happens in some of these governors races, I suspect you're going to have a Governor, for example, of Arizona who is, you know, not just devoted to the big lie about the last election, but I think could be counted on to do anything that she had to do or could do to subvert the next election if a Democrat wins in 2024. There's this sense that I have, and I know a lot of other people share it, that we've kind of been in the eye of the storm for the last, um, what is it, like 20 months, 18 months, um, where there are all these really malign forces that are gathering strength um that january 6 rather than being a culmination seems to just be another stopping point on the mm. road that the republican party is is um traveling and that you know we've had this moment of relative calm they've been out of power but it's not going to last and it's at, at, you you must have seen the news about what happened to Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, what happened to her husband, where there was this, you know, kind of MAGA fanatic who broke into his house. Um, He thought Nancy Pelosi was there. She wasn't. He intended to hold her hostage, break her kneecaps. And what's been really striking is just to see how many Republicans have either, you know, either they deny it, they say, oh, it was Nancy, it was his gay lover. Um, or else they just make jokes about it you know they really yeah. that there is not enough social solidarity in this country to even have you know sort of cross-party condemnation of that kind of violence which i think makes you or at least makes me really frightened for what i'm guessing is the even more intense violence to come well
2: liz cheney chair of the january 6th committee has endorsed the democrat in, in michigan um but mm-hmm. her career is almost over and in the context of what you're saying, with or without Trump, um, like even if he doesn't run for some reason or, you know, dies tomorrow, is the radicalization of the GOP so extreme now that the moderate wing is effectively dead
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes, like Liz Cheney is, you know, and Liz Cheney was a very, <laughs> it is a very, it is a very conservative Republican, right? The thing that makes her kind of anathema to the Republican Party is not that she's gone squishy on, you know, economic or cultural or foreign policy issues. It's that she condemns Donald Trump's actions on January 6th, um, insists that he didn't win the election and wants to see the people who made January 6th happen, held accountable. And that is an unacceptable position in the Republican party.
2: Let's look at some specific Senate races. You've got Herschel Walker in Atlanta, Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania, JD Vance in Ohio. Um, now, these are all sort of flawed candidates. And the argument has been that, that better candidates would have a much stronger chance of winning. Could all of, the, and they've all had like, I mean, Herschel Walker particularly has had a, 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 what seems like a disastrous campaign. Do you think all of them are still within a shot of winning? And does that? Oh, yeah, mean, absolutely. And does that mean that sort of nothing matters, that the sort of things that would once tank a campaign just don't? matter anymore.
1: Well, again, it's not that nothing matters. Saying that Donald Trump um, did not win the 2020 election would still tank a campaign. (laughs) But, you know, being an anti-abortion candidate who, you know, paid for at least one abortion, possibly two, another woman has come forward to say that that um, Herschel Walker pressured her into having an abortion that doesn't matter and it's interesting cuz the party has really changed since 2016 even when 2016 happened and you know you remember the access hollywood tape with donald trump you know bragging about sexual assault the republicans still voted for him but there was at least this moment of of panic there was a moment of maybe we should replace him on the ticket and people disavowing him and people expressing shame And there's really been basically none of that with Herschel Walker. I mean, right after the allegations came out initially about him paying for the abortion of this woman that he said he didn't know, although it then turned out that she's the mother of one of his children, he had one of his best fundraising days ever. You know, the party rallied around him. He was at this religious event and people were just laying hands on him and praying over him. I think that there's this kind of subterranean current of they've gotten so used to the thrill of impunity, the thrill of transgression, you know, the idea that if you have a certain amount of power or authority, then kind of the norms that apply to other people don't apply to you. It's not even hypocrisy anymore. It's basically, you know, an an anti-democratic party that doesn't believe the same rules should apply to everyone. Um,
2: I mean, you're, I know that the New York Times, the separation between opinion and news, um, the news section often gets criticised for talking for sort of both sidesism and talking about, you know, polarisation. Do you think journalists really have worked out how to cover politics when one party, you know, in a fair and impartial way, when one party essentially seems to have been enthusiastically giving up on democratic norms?
1: look, I don't want to actually talk about the internal stuff in the Times. I mean, I do think (laughs) that they have, I mean, I do think that they've, you know, if you look at like the Pelosi stuff, they have, you know, basically tried to report on the insane and untrue things that Republicans have Mm. been saying about it and reporting on them as, you know, kind of conspiracy theories as opposed to as, you know, kind of valid perspectives. It is a really difficult line to walk in part because you do want to report what the other people are saying and doing. Um, and, and you even want to report, you know, their own, their kind of, how do you put it? Like their anxieties and and terrors, their understanding of the political world, even if that understanding is conditioned by lies and conspiracy theories. Um, while at the same time, not acting as if you know, there's kind of two sides to the debate over the results of the 2020 Mm. election. It's basically when you have one party that is completely untethered from empirical reality and also completely indifferent to it, who treat it as a sort of joke, who kind of revel in their ability to say two different things out. You know, you see it with, for example, January 6th. You know, you see the people who say both, that it was Antifa who stormed the Capitol and that the people being held for January 6th are patriotic political prisoners. Um, you know, are these two things inconsistent? Obviously, they don't care. I, th- You know, this is something that Jean-Paul Sartre said that anti-Semites and anti-Semites is Jews, that it's the people who believe in language who are forced to take it seriously. And, you know, whereas the anti-Semite, you know, sort of revels in their ability to... To sort of speak nonsense and make um, make their interlocutors respond to that, and so it, it, it's very it's it's destabilizing, and it you know sort of necessarily destabilizes the conventions of mainstream reporting. Well, I
2: mean, it, our very sort of crude understanding of polarization is you know your red states and your blue states and the two Americas and so on, and yet we're seeing the Republicans might win uh, governorships in Oregon and New York, two very kind of you, states that we associate with, kind of liberal America. Um, I mean, obviously, these are really complicated. You reported on both of them. But but briefly, why is this, given the radicalized state of the Republican Party, why could why might this happen?
1: So, okay, so I was just in Oregon. So let me speak to that for a minute. And I think that that's, that's much closer than New York. I mean, I'm still quite worried about New York, but I do ultimately think that the Democratic governor, Cassidy, Kathy Hoke, will pull it out. So, Oregon, you have a couple of different factors. Um, One of the factors is this very well-funded third-party candidate. Um, She's gotten millions of dollars from Phil Knight, one of the founders of Nike, and who's taking a pretty substantial amount of the Democratic vote. You know, as I wrote in my column, though, that still doesn't explain why people are so disenchanted with Democratic leadership. And I think it's just... It's really just about kind of, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of of needs. Um, pe- when people are really scared, when they feel like there's a huge amount of public disorder, when they feel like things are really out of control, to try to link, you know, a woman like Christine Drazen, who's the Republican candidate for governor in Oregon and who actually is, you know, very, very conservative, but isn't a fire-breathing lunatic, you know, speaks in as a sort of sweet suburban mom Mm. um, to, to try to, I think if you're really into politics, the links are obvious and the dog whistles are obvious. Like if you're really into politics, you know what she means when she talks about the need to restore integrity to our elections, which implies that integrity has been lost, but that's very different than, you know, kind of stop the steal. And so she, she comes across as reasonable and, in Oregon, in particular, or in Portland, in particular, I mean, crime is up all over the United States. Um, downtowns have suffered a huge amount from their, you know, from the loss of workers coming in. Which sort of homelessness has increased. Portland, for a few different reasons, the homelessness crisis is like very few things I've ever seen in the developed world. I mean, it, there really are just you know, tent encampments lining the streets all over the place. The downtown is mostly empty, except for really, you know, kind of a lot of clearly suffering and clearly, um, you know, often delusional people walking around. Now, there's, the reasons for this are really complicated. Um, they closed a lot of the shelters during COVID um, and kind of encouraged people to camp. And that has Stock you already ha- you know you already had a lot of homelessness in some of these cities. There's also a and forgive me for getting too deep in the weeds, but I just want to kind of there's an idea out there that this is just liberal permissiveness, and it's much more complicated than that. Yeah. There was a, a there's a court ruling in the Ninth Circuit, which only applies to the Western states, that you can't stop people from camping if you don't have adequate shelter space for them. So there's all kinds of things that have contributed to this kind of sense of of disorder but the but the disorder is real it's 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 less real in new york um you know when i walk around with my kids i don't feel threatened i mean some of this is i'm a privileged person i live in a safe neighborhood but you know i'm in manhattan a fair amount it's it's emptier than it used to be it's more squalid than it used to be it's nothing compared to when i lived here you know it's nothing compared to the 90s in at least in my experience mm. but there is a sense of loss and you know, kind of vibrancy and and people are and people are afraid. And they they naturally blame that on um the Democrats who are in charge. And then the final thing I'll say is that in some ways the Democrats have been in these two states have been victims of their own success because they have written very broad protection for reproductive rights into state laws. And so what these anti-abortion gubernatorial candidates are saying is, I couldn't ban abortion in this state even if I wanted to. So you have nothing to worry about. So you can elect me to be tough on crime without worrying that, um, you know, kind of civil liberties that you value quite a lot will, will be endangered.
2: And finally, I mean, one of the striking things about Republicans is they seem to want to stop democratic policies more than they have their own policies. So if they take back the house and maybe the senate too what do you imagine their legislative agenda will be beyond thwarting biden
1: they'll probably pass a national abortion ban of some sort um you know whether that's a ban at six weeks or a ban at 15 weeks i'm not sure about but they will you know biden will veto it but there will be a lot of pressure on them to pass it but no i think that i mean whatever obviously i i am i am biased <laughs> but <laughs> But they're really, you really can't pick out a proactive agenda. I think even if you wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt, it's just not, you know, they're running, they're going to impeach Biden. Um, You know, some of them are demanding that they impeach, you know, Kamala Harris and um, Anthony Mayorkas and various other officials as well. They're going to have a lot of hearings, which is, you know, what they did at the end of the, at the end of the Obama administration, you know, they're going to have a lot of hearings into, Hunter Biden into the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was genuinely catastrophic. But um, I think that you'll end up with a lot of, you know, sort of bad faith hearings. They will have hearings into, you know, kind of alleged corruption by Anthony Fauci, who was a major figure in our COVID response. Um, and and then I think you'll have a lot of um, brinksmanship over the national debt because. You know, we have this insane mm. system where basically Congress has to raise the debt limit in order to keep paying debts that the United States has already incurred. So it's not as if, it's not about kind of Congress raising the debt limit to enable more spending. They have to raise the debt limit to avoid the United States going into default, which would have catastrophic impacts on the world economy and yet, nevertheless, Republicans are often quite willing to kind of force brinksmanship over the debt limit to, to, to get their way. And so, you know, we're going to see a bunch of kind of will-they-or-won't-they crises about whether or not, you know, the United States can kind of continue to pay its debts.
2: And then meanwhile, the 2024 election will
1: kick off. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, and this is, you know, we, we're in the era of the permanent campaign. So the 2020, 2024 kicks off, you know basically in January. um, And you'll start seeing, you know, the Republicans who are going to announce will start announcing.
2: I can see why British politics is sort of where you might turn for light relief.
1: Yeah, British politics. I mean, I I imagine that if you are there, it doesn't seem like such an oasis. But just the idea that you can be too corrupt or too inept, and therefore tossed aside, right? Even, I mean, that measure of accountability is something that is so missing in American politics, um, that yeah, it's hard not to envy the, and, and, you know, and also you just have, you know, generally less violence. So it's hard not to, um, envy the relative orderliness of it.
2: There we are, finally, something to make um, our listeners feel a bit better. (laughs) Wonderful. And that is the end of the show. Uh, thank you very much to Arthur Snell, Seth Teveau and our guest Michelle Goldberg. Stay tuned for the extra bit exclusively for backers on Patreon after our theme song Demon is a Monster by Shop, and a thank you to some of our backlog of generous supporters.
3: A big thank you from me to Nigel Mason, Clinton Hefford, Ali Anderson, Paula, Gillian Ulf, Linda Morgan, Kim Finer, Kevin Folks, Nick Perry and Sarah Castleton. Hello from me and many thanks for your support to
0: Mariana Doherty, Alexandra Colwell, Matt D, Matthew Russell, Lisa Smeaton, Georgina, Marianne Connors, Jan,
2: Julia Arthur and Keith Cowans. And thanks from me to Stephen Reynolds, Rose, Catherine Tara Marshall, Claire Thorne, Helen Wheeler, Amelia Bailey, Jude... Ada McArdle, Lisa O'Sullivan and Paul Edward McQuillan Thank you so much, we'll see you next time Oh God, What Now? was presented by Dorian Linsky with Arthur Snell and Seth Tebow Audio productions from me Robin Lieburn, and the producers were Alex Rees Jacob Archbold and Jelena Sofraniewicz Assistant production from Kasia Tomasiewicz Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, Proof editor Andrew Harrison, and Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. On Halloween, MIA, who is traditionally seen as a left-wing musician, posted a picture of herself with alt-right celebrity Candice Owens, who has also been a driver of Kanye West's recent antics. Increasing numbers of celebrities and musicians are turning into cranks before our eyes, losing fans and sponsorships along the way. What is going on? Um, Michelle, for those who don't know, who is Candace Owens?
1: she's a kind of star of the young American, right? Um, she's a podcaster and a frequent speaker or not a podcaster, a webcaster. Um, she has like a video show on the network of, um, Ben Shapiro. who's kind of an aspiring, actually pretty, very successful young right-wing media mogul. She's a very frequent guest on Fox news, um, You know, sort of a and and I think what makes her, I guess, notable is that she's a young black woman who will say that, um, you know, it is white men who are the most oppressed people in American society.
2: That's yeah, that's a that's a
1: good gig for her. Um, Seth. And that was
2: a little teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week, without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly cast, Oh God What Else, every Monday morning. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening. See you next week.